I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. so bad you shouldn't take it so personal i didn't mean to make you so sad you just happened to be there that's all when i saw you say goodbye to your friend and smile i thought that it was well understood that you'd be coming back in a little while i didn't know that you were saying goodbye for good but sooner or later one of us must know you just did what you're supposed to do sooner or later one of us must know that i really did try to get close to you this is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And this week we're talking about One of Us Must Know, sooner or later, or maybe it's the other way around, from 1966's Blonde on Blonde. And joining me is fellow Bobcat, Glenn Campbell. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Rob. It's great to have you here on the show. Uh, it's it's great to be here. I've been a very devoted listener for about three and a half years now, ever since I just. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a long time. The show's only been around for about four, so that's uh, that's fantastic. So before we talk about the song, I mean, of course, i got to ask you a standard question since this is your first appearance. How did you become a fan? Well, I've been a fan a long time. I'm, uh, I pick up I'm a little bit older than you, a few years older than you, but um, I got into a Bob when I was in uh, the latter stages of high school. I um, was a kid in the in the 70s, and I grew up on kind of, you know, standard pop uh, top 40 uh, fare. I kind of knew who Bob was. Um, I, I played acoustic guitar a little bit as a kid, and I learned blowing in the wind and that kind of stuff, and I knew he was kind <laughs> of a legend. But early on, my tastes were much more kind of mainstream and even adult contemporary. And then as I was in... Um, in high school, I got into the Beatles and I got into Paul Simon. And of course, I learned of their their influence, uh, you know, from Dylan. And they kind of served as a bridge to me, uh, to Bob. And I remember when the Infidels album came out in 83, I was in, in uh, a junior in high school. And I heard Sweetheart Like You and I thought that was, uh, I, I really liked the cool album cover with him in the shades. And I bought that <laughs> single, I remember. And then... <laughs> Months later, I borrowed the album from someone and and taped it. If you remember those days, and um, oh yeah, and so I kind of was was very kind of Dylan friendly then. But it was um, uh, a few months later, I uh, I borrowed an album from uh, the father of a friend of mine, and that album was Blood on the Tracks, and that kind of changed everything for me. I, I somehow never uh, managed to give that album back to my. <laughs> He never asked for it. And <laughs> the one with the with the cool um, Bob uh, illustration on the back, but that really kind of sealed the deal. And then that was the summer between my my uh, freshman and and uh, uh, my my junior and senior years of high school. And I just spent my senior year kind of compiling you know um, the the Dylan backlog at that point, um, buying up everything I could. It was kind of a, a, a low point, you know, uh, Real Live came out then and Empire Burlesque came out then, uh, but I was really into them and I just, I just gobbled up everything I could and then, you know, Biograph uh, uh, later in 85 and I've just been, uh, he's been, you know, my, my top artist ever since. 
there's some older gentleman out there who just stares at his record collection. There's that <laughs> gap. He's just, you know, he's just he's kind of Yeah, hopefully he's not a listener of yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, recognize my name. People don't forget Glenn Campbell. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's well, there's that there's that uh, section in the No Direction Home movie where the the guy talks about that like Dylan stole records from people and like they literally like chased him down to find these records and like Bob was just very, very free about um, borrowing other people's records. <laughs> yes, I remember that well. This is my only time, and it, but at least I'm <laughs> continuing a, a fine tradition uh, started by the, the man himself. <laughs> have you ever had a chance to see him live? I have. Um, I, I knew you were going to be asking me, so I kind of, uh, at one point I had a, a count, but I kind of lost count over the years, but I kind of reproduced things, and I think it's a, at least 16 times. Hmm. Uh, from 86, the first time I saw him was the summer of 86 with The Dead, and most recently it was November 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So you've really seen kind of the, I mean, it's funny, you saw him just before kind of the unofficial beginning of the never-ending tour. Like, yes. it was really in companies. So what did you, I mean, what have you, obviously you're enjoying them if you've seen him 16 times, but I mean, overall, what do you think of him as a as a live performer? Well, yeah, obviously I have enjoyed um, them, but I've... I've found it to be quite a mixed bag. I, I've kind of picked up, I, I maybe, you know, among the Bobcats, as you put it, I maybe appreciate his live concerts these days a little less than you and some of your guests, mm. which is why I, I've kind of been on a hiatus since November 2014. Um, just the, the kind of spottiness of it has, um, has made me a little bit less frequent in recent years, but um, when he's on, I mean, it's it's just magical, as you've you know many times discussed on the shows. And um, probably my favorite uh, period of seeing him was in the the late '90s and early 2000s, like right after Time Out of Mind. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. I, he was really at the uh, top of his game then. But frankly, I look back at the footage from, you know, uh, the uh, Rolling Thunder and obviously the 60s shows, and I've always been a little jealous uh, for folks who, who were able to see him then because I, I think that the concerts since that time haven't been quite up to the standard set. If you watch the, uh, the Rolling Thunder review uh, documentary? Yeah. yeah, loved it. Loved it. That's, that's probably my favorite period Um uh, of, of him and I, I have a, a friend who, who caught him on one of those shows. Oh wow! Jealous as as can be. <laughs> one of the things I found about that documentary, which I still need to cover on the show at some point, was so startling was that how much concert footage there was up close. You know, like right on the stage with Bob performing, and I'm always, you know, like you don't really get a chance to see that very much where he's that up close, and it really was quite riveting thinking that there was like a cameraman, you know, walking in between the performers like that and being so close up uh, to Bob and getting to seeing it that close. So yeah, I, I can only imagine what seeing the actual Rolling Thunder review <laughs> must have been like. That's just kind of really startling. It's such a, those performances are just so electric. So, uh, so anyway, well, that's, that's, that's fantastic. So yeah, we're here to talk about uh, sooner or later, one of us must know, or what I, I keep, Calling it that, it's all the other way around. It's one of us must know, parentheses, sooner or later. Uh, again, from, from Blonde on Blonde, I opened uh, the show by quoting a couple of the, couple of the lines. Let's continue on here. The third verse, I couldn't see what you could show me. Your scarf had kept your mouth well hid. I couldn't see how you could know me. But you said you knew me, and I believed you did. When you whispered in my ear and you asked me if I was leaving with you or her, I didn't realize just what I did here. I didn't realize how young you were. 
sooner or later, one of us must know you just did what you're supposed to do. Sooner or later, one of us must know that it really did try and get close to you. And I've, I've said this on other episodes where we've talked about songs from, from Blonde on Blonde. And I always find it fascinating, Glenn, that this album, you know, as we know about it, was recorded in very late 1965, early 1966, right after he had gotten married to Sarah Lowndes. And yet half of this record are romantic kiss-off songs. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, half of them are very sweet and obviously aimed at the romantic woman in his, the, the you know, romantic partner in his life, whether it's I Want You or Satellite Lady of the Lowlands. But then you have songs like this where he's clearly giving a really forceful kiss-off to somebody, uh, presumably a romantic somebody, but it, it's sort of fascinating. The, the A and B of that record is that it's, you've got these songs, they're, they're so sweet, and then you've got these other ones where he's telling people, get out of my life, basically. And this is just one of those songs. And in, I will tell you, it's always been one of my favorites off of Blonde on Blonde. I think it's an underappreciated song. Oh, me too. Absolutely. Um, I th- there, There's something about this that I think captures the overall sound and spirit of the album, which is my number two favorite album of his. I'm with you, Blonde on Blonde. I, I'm sorry, uh, Blood on the Tracks is is the best, but Blonde on Blonde is a very close second, you know, just because of its scope. There's so much good stuff there and everything. But I think this song is kind of the quintessential song on the album because it's it's kind of midway between some of the the slower softer songs and the and the more up-tempo rock songs and also i think this this one to me captures what um he referred to as the wild silver mercury sound that he was right. looking for in the overall album uh it, at least to me i i when i hear when i heard him say that i thought of this song and i kind of know what he means especially at the end of it in the crescendo where every all the all the musicians are just jamming and he just jams on the on the harmonica it's just kind of it's kind of celebratory and and um it's it's just to me that's the wild thin mercury sound I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah, let's, let, let me go through the, the final verse and then we talk about that. It says, I couldn't see when it started snowing. Your voice was all that I heard. I couldn't see where we were going, but you said you knew and I took your word. And then you told me later as I apologized that you were just kidding me. You weren't really from the farm. And I told you as you clawed out my eyes that I never really meant to do you any harm. Sooner or later, one of us must know you just did what you're supposed to do. Sooner or later, one of us must know that I really did try and get close to you. And it, it is that, that ending part, uh, that final verse, the, the, fine, the repeat of the chorus, before it, he does that harmonica break. And as you say, all the band comes in. That, to me, is my favorite part of it. And, again, it's something about the quality of his voice because, again, this is the – he's going through the, the, the refrain, the chorus, three times. And he sings it slightly differently each time. I can't quite put my finger on what it is, why they're different, but they are. And the way he sort of almost, um, not, not raises his voice, but he does a slight inflection on the final line of the song that has this wonderful kind of like, he's almost like stepping back a little, like, you know, okay, this is it. This is the final word. And the punctuation of what I'm saying is going to come here from the instruments. And mm-hmm. just the way it soars at the end. And it has this weight to it that's really remarkable. And I find it very touching because the lyrics can be regarded as a little cruel uh, in some ways. I mean, when he talks about it at the beginning, you just happen to be there, that's all. That's a really 
cruel thing to say to somebody that you were, you know, you were just there. That's yeah. all. And he's almost trying to convince himself of it a little, but as the song goes on, I feel like the the narrator is revealing that this person meant a little more to them than they're letting on. And they're sad about it. And just, again, the way that it ends with everybody coming at the end, I just find so powerful. Yeah, exactly. Your take on it is similar to mine. I mean, I've read some some criticism and interpretations that this is just, you know, a class, another one of the classic Dylan put down songs, you know, in the spirit of Positively Fourth Street or or things like that. And I just think it's, I think it's more quintessentially like one of his uh, complex love songs. You know, he can write about relationships and love in a more nuanced way than, than anyone. And he was doing it from the very beginning with don't think twice is all right and everything else. And this, to me, it's, it's not a straight put down because I think there's, I, I feel a sense of hurt on his part coming Mm -hmm. through. Mm-hmm. And there, there's real ambivalence about the whole thing. I mean, there's regret in here. There's guilt, but there's a there's 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 vengeance a, a bit. I'm in you know the the kind of borderline meanness. There's kind of a, a cattiness. There's apology. It's just I, I think he captures well the the confusion of like infatuation or a crush or love. You know that the people of that age, you know, when he was what, 24, when he wrote this, you know, are, are apt to feel, and it's just the complexity of it all. And it's, it's, it's almost like a pre-shadowing of, um, well, no, I guess it's, it reminds me of uh, one too many mornings. You're right from your side. I'm right from mine. Um, there's that element to it, even if it's not explicit, you know, um, because the more explicit stuff is the, is the, is the put down. But yet he is, it's, it, there's more to it than that. And he really does seem to be regretting the, the relationship. But yeah, you're right. There is the side here where it's kind of the, the jerk Bob Dylan that we sometimes see in scenes from Don't Look Back and, and, and things like that. And we, we know that there, he had that side to him, um, certainly in the 60s. Yeah, yeah uh, I like, again, I like in the refrain where he adds the word, I really did try to get close to you. And there's just something about he's, he is trying to stress to this person, even though he is giving them a, a, a kiss off that he did try. He really did try. And I know that, you know, part of it is you're trying to get the, the meter of the song, right. That you have to have a certain amount of, um, of con, you know, syllables in there for it to, to, to work out. But there's just something to me about, I really did try to get close to you. There's just something very plain spoken about that, that I enjoy. And, you know, uh, like a lot of songs on Blonde on Blonde, there is the implicit uh, triad relationship going on. I mean, he straight up says, you asked me if I was leaving with you or her. Uh, I mean, that good, that happens in, in a lot of these songs. I mean, Visions of Johanna, you talk about there's, there's a triad going on. You know, Blonde on Blonde is so florid. Uh, with its language, with its metaphors, and with its sort of curly cues and these phas- phantasmagorical flights of fancy, whether it's stuck inside of Mobile or, or again, Saturday of the Lowlands or Vision of jo- Vision of Johanna, this song is so straightforward. Uh, it really is very plain spoken. There really isn't much in the way of crazy, you know, uh, the Kings of Tyrus on Cannery Row kind of stuff. It's pretty simple. I mean, there's. The, the line about about being from the farm, which is a little like, I'm really sure what that is exactly. But for the most part, it's very straightforward. It's just, it's direct language of, it's kind of, it, I think I, again, I made this point when we did the um, 
Positively Fourth Street episode where that song was written in the in the context of Highway 61, but the language is pared down to be very very simple in a in a different way. You could imagine this song sung on Time Out of Mind, I think, and it, I mean obviously in a very different era of Bob Dylan, but it's the same kind of language where it's very very simple and straightforward. It's just like okay, we're not I mean, we're not getting caught up in in metaphors here. It's just this is what I tried to do for you and I tried different ways and you know, we were, it didn't really work out. I kept trying, but it didn't really work out. And so now uh, one of us is eventually going to figure it out why this didn't work. And again, I think the parentheses, Bob only has a handful of songs with the parentheses in the title. Uh, But that seems to suggest something too, that the idea that I'm realizing it now and, but sooner or later you're going to realize it too. Uh, it just has that wonderful it's kind of simplicity to it and coming where it does on the record right after the crazy head trip of visions of Johanna. It's a nice gear. It's a nice uh, shifting of gears to just something a little more direct. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the, the poetry isn't really present here, but the, the subtlety and nuance of, of Dylan at that time really still is. And yeah, I know what you mean. I I think there are some other lines that show having regret or or caring more than he maybe wants to let on. Um, when he says, "I couldn't see what you could show me," your scarf had kept your mouth well hid. I couldn't see how you could know me, but you said you knew me, and I believed you did. That's that's really interesting to me. There's I to me there's just so much going on in this song, and I think he's just really depicting well the kind of how, how torn you know someone can be when they're kind of infatuated with with someone and but not sure how to go in it and you know given his circumstances like you said he was recently married to sarah lowndes i i don't know i i heard some speculation this was about like an ed about Edie sedgwick or someone you know from the 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 whole warhol scene and um i don't know he he just he captures the confusion well, I'm imagining that when Bob got married, there was probably a whole list of women that were realizing in that moment, oh, okay, that door is shut now. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I'm sure that Bob Dylan, as he was bestowing his attention on different people, and maybe not even just women, obviously, uh, but he was bestowing his attention on people that they, everyone wants to think that they're special to this person because this person is so magnetic and so powerful. And Maybe on a more cynical uh, way, you know, this person is so rich and so famous and, and, you know, is on this meteoric rise and you want to think that you're special in their lives. But when you find out that, you know, he's, he's went off and got married to somebody that kind of a lot of people hadn't even heard of was in his life, they may realize, oh, geez, okay, I'm not as special to this person as, as I thought. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I like the, uh, the metaphor and the, uh, the, the story of the, I couldn't see when it started snowing. Your voice was all that I heard. I couldn't see where we were going, but you said you knew, and I took your word. I mean, obviously, um, from for someone who is from Minnesota, uh, the snowing thing has got to be, you know, it's a metaphor, but maybe not sometimes, you know. It's like that, that's got to be, you know, maybe he's thinking of memories of walking with someone in the deep, dark snow. I mean, he was in New York, too. It's not like New York doesn't get snow. But, uh, you know, that could be something, a memory from his life of walking with someone in the middle of the snow. And it was your voice was all that I heard. For someone whose voice is so famous, uh, obviously someone, he's a singer, 
casting the other person as the voice is the thing that he heard. That was the important thing to him is a nice sort of way to flip it around. He was, he was listening to someone else and this is probably a reach, but this is what the show is about. I mean, you could even necessarily maybe even think uh, this is he, the, the narrator is talking to maybe not necessarily a romantic partner, but someone who creatively they were following and now they're not anymore. It could be that too. Your voice was all that I heard. It could, I mean, I think probably a lot of people might say that about Bob Dylan himself. Your voice was all that I heard. And maybe this person isn't doing it for you anymore. So you know what? You're casting them aside. Uh, you know, obviously that's a one-sided relationship uh, when you're listening to someone uh, on records because they're not knowing, you know, you think you know them, but they don't know you. But nevertheless, we all know that there are people who probably think that they know Bob Dylan very well, even though they've never met him because they've bought every record and they think that maybe they know him too. So it could be, you could figure that part of it in if you wanted to. Yeah. And I've heard, um, and I read of an interpretation that this um, is maybe a farewell to the folk scene. Mm-hmm. The, the, the put down is to, you know, the people who had been, have been doing him at his concerts, you know, in the, in the months leading up to this. And um, that certainly works on some level. I, I, you know, this is the beauty of, of <laughs> his work you can read it however you want. That's a little bit less compelling to me, but I think, I think he, he tends to often merge a lot of things together in these songs, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think there's a certain element of this that is similar to like a Rolling Stone in that it has the same kind of mean put down um, elements in it in some ways, but there's a lot more going on there. And I think, um, you know, sometimes the you he's talking about might be himself. And I, this is, again, I think it's, it's straightforward, but there's a, but it's, it's complex. Right. Yeah. I said, it it seems so again, straightforward and it is with the language, but they said, there's a lot going on and so much of it is again, the vocal performance of what he brings to it. And this is obviously a song that he uh, knew he really wanted to get right. Apparently there were 15 takes of it. Uh, stretching over nine hours, which is, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of, that's, he's not necessarily known for, for doing that. Although Blonde on Blonde, there seemed to be more of that than, than in some other records. And it wasn't until near the end that he finally brought in Al Cooper to provide that sort of ghostly organ sound uh, that he wanted. And that would ended up being the version, you know, the, the, one of the later versions was the one that they went with. Uh, you can hear some of the embryonic versions uh, over on the uh, one of the bootleg series, the cutting edge where you hear some of the, uh, the alternate takes and you can find it on YouTube. There's a great bit in one of the takes where Bob's just sort of talking into the microphone and he says something to somebody and then you hear him say, nobody sings these songs in a, and then, uh, then he talks to Bob Johnson and he says, why don't you record this? And you hear Bob Johnson say, I'm getting it all, which is, <laughs> that was funny. I'm like, Bob Johnson's like, don't worry about it, Bob. We're recording every second of this. And obviously uh, that ended up working out because, you know, Columbia Records can sell it 50 years later. <laughs> it's every conceivable version of it, every half-form version. Um, from the versions I've heard, the alternate takes, it's clear, I think, that Bob knew that the, the later version was the, the right one, the right one to use. He got, he nailed it in terms of the soaring uh, you know, the bigness of it. And it really ends well. So it's, it's, while it took 15 takes, it, it did arrive there. It wasn't like Rolling Stone where they did nine takes 
and then they went back and realized that it was take two was the one that was the best one. It's this was one of the later ones, and I think they finally they just kept working at it until finally they realized this is the one that they got. And obviously, Bob was so happy with it, and I guess Columbia Records was uh, as well because it became a single. It became the yeah. first single off of Blonde on Blonde. I think it reached around number thirty three on the charts. It wasn't a particularly big hit, but it was it was a genuine single, and it ended up being one of I think four singles off of Blonde on Blonde. But it was. I saw in the Columbia Records, obviously thought this probably represented the the album pretty well and had a, a commerciality that some of the other songs did not. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the the various um outtakes. I don't have the giant big version of the this particular bootleg um series. The you know, the I guess there were what, ten discs or something. Oh my lord. And that's yeah. where they're from. But I did come across the outtakes on YouTube, the swinging pigs website and that was fascinating to see how the song evolved because you know the it's a uh, the, the outtakes i heard was like a 15 minute stretch and they right. had um, a multiple takes sampled and the early ones it starts out a totally different song it's like a rolling blues that sounds a lot like temporary like achilles from, mm-hmm. from the album, you know the 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 slow piano blues and i couldn't conceive of this song being structured any other way before I heard that. And, you know, strangely, as always with Bob, it kind of works that way, but it works much, much better in, in its, you know, in its final release form. And yeah, the, the listening to his back and forth in the studio with the other musicians um, and with, with the, the, producer bob johnson like you said who he says he's the one who suggests that bob do the harmonica at the beginning Mm -hmm. um there's a uh, there's a little snippet of that and also there's a snippet of bob saying something like there there's one very important part thing in this song and then it cuts out before you get to hear him uh you know identify what that is but he clearly was playing around with this and it just evolved really quickly and what one of the reasons I chose this song and one of the reasons it's one of my favorites is probably one of my top 10 on his whole catalog is the, the crescendo in this song. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. maybe the only Bob Dylan song with a crescendo in it. And I'm kind of a sucker for that, but <laughs> just the building up of, it's like a, a wonderful cacophony of, of, um, of, uh, uh, you know the different musicians and i love the al cooper organ and i love the the piano i i read that it's a a guy named paul griffin mm-hmm. and just playfulness um of the piano playing and the in the especially the piano but the, the organ and i guess uh robbie robertson's on guitar um it, it's the musicianship of it is extraordinary and i think it just musically it's it's different from anything else in his catalog. There's nothing else that's quite like it structurally. It's interesting when you listen to the, the bootleg versions is that for the most part, the, the, the lyrics are there. It's basically all the same lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one, this is not a song that he was fidgeting with lyrically uh, a lot through the various takes. I mean, the visions of Johanna, the lyrics change here and there, but I mean, this one's pretty much lyrically. I think he knew what he wanted. It was just a matter of getting to the sound that he was going for. And again, it is remarkable how much a song can change just the tone just by the, the performance of it. And, and yeah, I, I heard the other, the other versions and I'm like, yeah, these are interesting, but it just doesn't have that. 
that just that wonderful again the, the crescendo just doesn't have that uh and again i like the intro i do like the harmonica harmonica intro but it just it just doesn't build to this sort of wonderful conclusion and if it's it's an amazingly um intimate song even though there's a room full of people performing this uh which doesn't always lend itself to that but to me it it really does feel like bob talking to this, this one specific person or the narrator talking to one specific person and just sort of leaning in close and just saying, you know, I really did try to get close to you and that's too bad that it's not going to work, but you know, okay, let's blast the harmonic one more time and, and fade out. Uh, it said, it just has that wonderful, uh, just wonderful intimacy to it. Despite it being a sort of a big performance live wise, uh, this song has not been performed very much. It's only been performed 60 times he did not play it at all until 1976, which is amazing. Uh, it's yeah. a darn shame that it was never played at the shows with the band uh, when they were out storming the, you know, storming the country, playing that, or you were, or you didn't do it acoustically either. So it, it um, he played it in 1976, and he played it fairly regularly from 76 through 1978. And then once again, it got retired for another 20 odd years. And then he did it twice in August of 1997. And that was it. It has not surfaced since. So that's, uh, I don't, I wonder, you always got to wonder, like, why? What, what was it in August of 1997 <laughs> that he was like, oh, let's do this, you know? Okay. And then not again. And then it's basically been retired, which is a darn shame because I think this is such a great song. But, uh, yeah, that was it. He's never not, not since. Yeah, you you have to wonder what what goes through his mind for that extremely brief resurrection like that. The the thing that's a shame is that was around the time that I saw him most, but I wasn't, you know, a member of the the lucky two audiences that that heard it in '97. Yeah, it's just, I'd like to find bootlegs of those or concerts to hear what that sounded like, but it's, I wonder what it you know how different the sound must have been for for those two again the 97 versions but that was that was it now i do want to mention a couple of covers this song was covered uh, a couple of times on some tribute records old crow medicine show covered it and uh mick hucknall covered it on the chimes of freedom uh benefit record for amnesty international and of course it was just covered this year by emma swift on her uh, Blonde on the Tracks record. We had Emma on the show earlier this year. And there's a video for it. She actually has a uh, sort of very Peter Gabriel-esque video for her cover of One of Us Must Know, which I really enjoy. She does something very, very different with it. And you can see that over on on YouTube, and I recommend it. So that was, again, it's another fun cover. So it's a, it's a song that uh, people can adapt to their own needs. The old Crow Medicine Show version uh, is a little different. Mick Hucknall does, I think, more of a Dylan-esque version of it. But it's 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 just a terrific song, and then on a record, you know, loaded with great songs, loaded with masterpieces. I mean, good lord! I mean, imagine trying to be the song that that follows Visions of Johanna. That's kind of a tough. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of a tough thing to do. Yeah, but this this you know um, comes through. It 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 meets the bar. Um, I think one of the I, I I've heard the the old Crow Medicine Show and Mick Hucknall versions. I really like the Mick Hucknall one. He he kind of uh, it is very Dylan esque, but he kind of uh, channels Rod Stewart a little bit. I think mm-hmm. in the vocal performance of it. But I, I think it's a nice update. The old Crow Medicine Show. It's interesting. I couldn't again. I I never conceived of the song being performed kind of acoustic like that. And I mm-hmm. think their, 
version, the, the verses work really well. The, the chorus, not so much so for me. It's, it doesn't bring across, I think, just some of the complexity we were talking about before. It just seems a little bit, um, uh, the, the, the way they, their arrangement handles the chorus, it just seems a little bit, I don't know, trite or it just doesn't work for the, the spirit of the song. Yeah. So this was uh it was, again, we mentioned this was a, a single. There aren't that many Bob Dylan singles outside of the sixties, by the way, just, I was going through his list of singles. This, this blonde on blonde, the next single ended up being rainy day women, number 12 and 35, which was obviously a huge song for Dylan. And then he did, I want you and just like a woman. So they realized there was a lot of material here to, to farm, uh, for a, uh, for him as a, a singles artist. And then not too long, by the time after, uh, we got after to, uh, after Nashville skyline, the singles kind of dried up a little bit. There were some on Blood on the Sun on Planet, on Planet Waves and Blood on the Tracks. But at a certain point, I think they just stopped worrying about Bob as a sort of a, a singles artist. But uh, yeah, I mean, this this is, uh, it. Uh, it's a song that I think, I mean, I, I was one of my favorites off of Blonde on Blonde. Bob himself, you can't necessarily assume that because he doesn't perform something a lot live, that means he's not a fan of it. Although I think maybe there's a safe assumption that, you know, he sees something in it as a live song. And but this thing has just been, you know, just it's sort of forgotten about on on one of on blonde on blonde. It's just not something that he he wheels out. But you never know with him. Obviously, yeah. Uh, we keep saying that you never know. He, this might be something that he brings out when he resumes touring again. What I find curious is that it you know it was a single, but yet it wasn't included on greatest hits one or right. greatest hits. Of I'm two, and uh, it, you know, at the same time, the other three singles were, you know, true hits. I, yeah. you know, heard them on classic rock radio and stuff. You never heard this, um, but I, I think it really is a, like an overlooked gem, and I think it's a favorite of a lot of people. A lot of Dylan fans I know really like this. Um, just kind of too often falls through the cracks, I think, which is one of the reasons I wanted to to suggest it. One other thing that strikes me about this song that I know you have um, commented on on a few other songs uh, on the the program is to me there's kind of a mismatch between the the music and the the subject matter of the lyrics and the tone of the lyrics. I mean, it's kind of a down downer song, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's regret, there's potentially put down, but there's something exuberant and kind of almost triumphant about about the sound itself and you know again his genius is to even though there's kind of that mismatch it all works and i just love the main appeal for me is just listening to the 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 jamming and the the chorus and especially at the end and i love the harmonica solo at the end it's one of my favorite harmonica solos of 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 all uh in his work but it it's just it's crazy that it, it sounds joyous but it's uh, kind of a downer topic. <laughs> so much of, of Dylan's work I find is, has got that tension to it. And tension, yeah. tension is not always a bad thing. It, it's, it's thought of as a sort of a pejorative, but not always. But uh, again, some of the language here, we talked about you clawed out my eyes. That's another ghastly image that Dylan is somehow able to drop into his song sometimes. And it, they don't knock the song off its axis, uh, you know? Yeah. And, someone clawing out your eyes is a horrible horrible thing but yet there's i mean you obviously know he's not speaking literally but he's just able to go by it and again it has there's this that as you say it's a downer of a lyrically it's it's a downer although it's kind of got a more resigned 
feel to it. Um, but but yeah, the music is so soaring and so uplifting in a weird way that yeah, it has that kind of weird like boy, this is I'm being some he's kissing somebody off, but boy, he's doing it in such a invigorating way you just kind of like oh my god you know (laughs) yet and yet you're like if if you were the you were the object of the song you're like he just just told me to f off like what the hell is that about you know yeah but boy he sounded good when doing it (laughs) yeah absolutely so that's it's the magic of the guys we're still talking about this all this material 50 years later so well uh i mean glenn thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it um I, I, I'm going to compliment myself and then I have spent the entire episode and I haven't made one rhinestone cowboy joke throughout the whole show. So I'm very proud of myself. It took a lot of self-control. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've been hearing um, it my whole life. Less I'm, so these, these days, though. The last, last few years. Uh, right, you know, right, right, right. But I'm sure, sure in the 70s and 80s, you were real sick of it. <laughs> oh. Indeed. <laughs> so, well, again, thank you so much for reaching out, and thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for doing the show every week. It's it's uh, it's a great resource. Um, I I the, the concept kind of surprised me. Like, how could that work to talk about uh, you know just one song every week? <laughs> I wonder that sometimes myself. <laughs> yeah, it's really compelling, and almost every time I end up, you know, even though I've been a fan for what thirty some years now i go back and i i you know get excited about the 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 song you just discussed again and i rediscover it again and so it's it really kind of keeps uh keeps his work fresh to a lot of us out here keep it up and thank you thank you very much that's very nice of you to say i really appreciate that so all right everybody well of course uh, you can find all the back episodes of pod dylan over, over on our website firewaterpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show on apple podcast spotify and stitcher we're always talking bob over on twitter at pod underscore dylan and if you want to support the fine water podcast network go to patreon.com slash fw podcast and there you can unlock various rewards one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice so a big thanks to robert ward Steve Cronin, Henry Bernstein, Max Hutzel, and Sebastian Krogh for their support of Pod Dylan. This is the final episode of Pod Dylan for calendar year 2020. And man, what a year it has been. Uh, I think all of us are going to be glad when it's over. Get the hell out of here, 2020. This has been an enormously fun year for Pod Dylan. I think I've done more episodes of the show this year than I have any other year uh, previous. And that has been enormously fun fun i've had a lot of great guests on and i thank everybody who has taken the time to come and talk to me on the show glenn yourself included of course uh i said i really appreciate uh, anybody that wants to talk about dylan with me it's just such a fun show to do and i really enjoy it and i'm looking forward to doing the show in in 2021 and seeing uh, what conversations we're going to have uh, for that year too so again thanks everybody for listening i hope you all have a wonderful a new year. Can't wait for 2020 to be over already. And uh, we will see you all in uh, 2021. So that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. Try to get close to you